Welcome to another podcast by InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley, joined by Greg Barnes. And, you know, Greg, it's time to talk football. We've been talking basketball. We've been talking stadium experiences, all sorts of stuff over the last few weeks here in the doldrums of summer. But football season is almost upon us. You've been hard at work. And I want to go straight into a story you've got on Inside Carolina today. You interviewed Coach Keith Heckendorf about North Carolina's quarterback situation. It's got a lot of people nervous uh, in Chapel Hill and Carolina fandom. Just overall, talk about that discussion you had with Heck. Well, Heckendorf's uh, a young guy, and I think he uh, he has a good rapport uh, with with recruits, and he also has a good rapport with his players because he can kind of connect with them. Uh, being young helps, obviously, but also the fact that I mean he was a world class uh, quarterback in in uh, college. He played at St. Cloud State, uh, was a two time finalist, uh, which for the uh, Harlan Hill Trophy, which is given to the the top player in, in Division two football. I think he was second one year and third the other. Um, so a heck of a player, good uh, a good scholar. He was a two time academic All America. So he he's kind of got the the background that you want. Um, he, he's a guy that he worked in Nebraska for a couple of years. Uh, was offensive coordinator at Western Carolina before coming to North Carolina, and he he's been at, at UNC for for a long time. Had a had a very brief transition to Arkansas State. He was only there for a period of months uh, after uh, Blake Anderson went out there, but. Uh, he he's been around and you know, he's he's been able to to work with guys such as Brent Renner, uh, Marquise Williams, Mitch Trubisky, all different types of quarterbacks, uh, but all successful within this offensive scheme that Larry Fedora has created. So uh, he's got a lot of experience and a relatively short amount of time, and so now he's tasked with. Uh, building a, a unit that can be productive after last season. And I think kind of the interesting thing in talking with, with Keith is you, North Carolina um, last year, they probably knew that, that Chaz and Nathan weren't quite ready. Neither of the guys had really played. And that's one of the reasons they went and got Brandon Harris. And, um, you know, you talk with people behind the scenes and I think everybody acknowledges, hey, you know, they, they hoped Harris could come in, pick up the offense quickly, you kind of transition seamlessly with the team in a short amount of time. And that didn't work. And I think a lot of people around the program are, are open and, and admitting that. But what that did was that forced Chad Surratt and Nathan Elliott kind of into the limelight, probably before they were ready. Um, and so there were ups and downs. There were some some issues that, that had to be worked around. and. Um, that was a, a challenge for, for Keith last year and trying to kind of to, to get his quarterbacks to play up to a standard with everything kind of falling apart around them with injuries uh, to kind of play at a, a, a decent level. Um, you know, and I, I think it's one of those things I asked him, I said, look, you know, we have all these injuries. We see what takes place from the outside, kind of you know, absurd levels of, of <laughs> starts lost to injury, uh, games lost to injury. I think it was 232 games lost to injury, which is it's crazy. 
And I said, you, can you just say, you know what, After, with all this, especially most of those coming on the offensive side of the ball, can you just dismiss kind of what the guys did and chalk it up to a learning opportunity? And he said, you could probably make that case if you wanted to, but as a coach, you're looking at a per-play basis. And as you're watching these plays, you kind of say, okay, well, it doesn't matter who's on the field. That's not a play you should make. This is a good play. This is not a good play. And so while there is some of that, and I think a lot of the confidence issues with Chaz, for example, midway through the season, was somewhat of a snowball effect with regard to the injuries and kind of how things were playing out. Uh, but from a coaching standpoint, there was a lot of areas that that uh, where the players didn't make the, the right decision. And so that's really kind of been a, an emphasis uh, you know, through last year and now into the offseason as we start to prepare for training camp, which, as you allude to, Tommy, we're, I guess we're 17, 18 days away now. I wanted to play a clip from your interview. Um, it's Heckendorf talking about two important traits a quarterback needs to have. It's accuracy and decisiveness. And it's, you know, listening to your comments sort of maybe changes my interpretation or my thoughts on his comments. Um, but I'll talk about that a little bit after we hear from him. I mean, your quarterback has got to be a leader on the field. And he's got to possess leadership ability. Um, he's got to be the guy that when when the, you're in the storm, he's the one that can steer the ship. And he's the one that can get everybody going in the right direction. And they, they believe in and they follow. To be a great passer, you've got to be accurate. You've got to be able to put the ball where you want it, when you want it. And I think that's that's a unique trait of a, any team that's able to throw the ball up with success that's a that's a huge part of it but those two things would be right at the top you know and then right below it to me the next one is their understanding of what you're doing um their ability to process is, is the way we talk about it um their ability to make decisions in a decisive manner we we talk all the time in our room and really the whole coaching philosophy of the quarterback position goes down to this if you're decisive and you're accurate, you'll be right. And everything we do in our teaching focuses on that simple sentence. We're every day teaching them to be more decisive, and every day we're working to become more accurate quarterbacks. And when you do those two things, you got a chance to be right in every single play. The leadership, the competitiveness, the the refusal to to lose those are those those other traits that i think are huge for quarterbacks in terms of guys that separate themselves and and become elite players now he talks a lot about decisiveness and accuracy uh, but greg you can be decisive and make the wrong decision and that goes back to the point that you were talking about i think you get that from experience and you know, ability and Talent helps with decision making, um, mindset, and all that. Just speak to your thoughts on his comments there, and, and what I've tried to drag into the discussion. Yeah, well, I think a lot of it too is there's a lot of variety in this offense, and Larry Fedora talks a lot about concepts, uh, which is not just a particular route, but it's a couple routes put together. Uh, and Jason Staples has done a really good job over the years of kind of breaking down that. But typically, you know, in any given pass play you may have two concepts one to the left one to the right and the quarterbacks as they line up uh in the shotgun 
they are looking on both sides. They're pre-snap reads. There may be double slants on one side, and there may be uh, you know, a dig on the other side. And if the defense is set up properly to take away the slants on the right side, you exit out. It's no longer in play, that side of the ball. And now you're focused completely on this other side where the dig is. Um, and so I think that's kind of what the decisiveness comes down to is you don't have a lot of time. But when you're back there, you have to be able to make a quick read. And sometimes it's black and white. I mean, sometimes it's like, okay, this is obvious. I am not going over here. So I've got to throw it over here to the left side. But you're you're kind of fortunate when that happens, when it's that clear, because a lot of times it's not. A lot of times it's, eh, you could probably go either way. What is the safest play? That's the play where I'm, I know I'm not going to you know, make a turnover or I'm going to put us in bad position. And so that's where the, the, the decisiveness really comes in. It's saying, okay, this is really borderline which way I need to go here, but I don't have any time to think about it. I've got five seconds here and I got to go. And I think that's really what it is, is you have to have confidence in yourself to make the right decision. And sometimes it may be more than one right decision. But whatever decision you make, be confident in it uh, and then might make the right play. And I think that's really kind of what he's getting at is you have to know the offense so well um, that you're not confused in, in crunch situations. And you, you have to have that level of confidence that you can make the throw um, you know, even if even if the guy maybe is, is, is covered or the defensive back does something you weren't expecting. Uh, and then it's also a matter of, of building chemistry with your players, uh, with your teammates. And that's that's off season work. But you have to be able to when you're in the middle of a, of a play, you're getting ready to snap the ball. You know, if, if Anthony Ratliff Williams is over here and he sees that defensive back doing something that they can take advantage of. You have to have some level of communication with them. To be like, all right, you know what? This is a little bit outside the realm of what we're wanting to do, but we're pretty sure we can capitalize on this mistake that the defensive back's making. And so those are things that kind of go out beyond just basic schematics. Uh, that's you know a good player becoming a great player. And we saw Mitch Trubisky do that a lot over the years. I mean, how many times did Marquis Williams turn a broken play into positive yards? Uh, and that's not something that the coach teaches. That's something that you know, Marquise learned the offense. He worked with his teammates. He knew what they were going to do, and he could really make something out of nothing. And that's why one of the reasons that 15 offense was so good. And so it's just little things like that. And I think that's really where you know, the decisiveness comes into play. Uh, it's a little bit beyond maybe what you would typically expect from a quarterback. And don't you think, and I know we've talked about this with, you know, Jason Staples, Ross Martin likes to joke about Jason's, you know, six minute uh, dissertation on route running and, and route trees, which I found it fascinating to each his own, I suppose. But, <laughs> you, you know, a lot of these quarterbacks, clearly there's some better than others. Trubisky was a great one. Uh, Elliot and Surratt struggled last year, but it's not all, not all on them. A lot of this stuff comes from wide receivers have to be in the correct place at the right time. And I think that's a big part. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's a big part and probably as important part for this North Carolina offense, isn't it? That not only do the quarterbacks have to be decisive and accurate, but the receivers have to be in the right spots or it's going to lead to turnovers. It's going to lead to you know interceptions hitting the DB right in the chest. 
and everybody says, oh, damn, the you know, quarterback you know, can't hit the broadside of a barn. Um, but it's not necessarily on them. I think that fact is lost a lot watching Carolina. Yeah, I think there's two great examples that are recent examples. Uh, number one is Ryan Switzer. I mean, compare Ryan Switzer as, say, a sophomore uh, as a wide receiver to what he was as a senior. I mean, was that a matter of the quarterbacks were just that much better? And granted, I know that he had Trubisky in 16, so that makes a difference for sure. But if you talk to the coaches, what they'll tell you is he he may have known the routes his first couple of years, but that's the very basic role that a wide receiver has is knowing your routes. I mean, that's, that's not difficult necessarily. Uh, but what's, what's challenging and how you get good is you learn, okay, well, this defender's leveraging this way. This guy's a little too far inside. How do I create space? You know, if they're playing zone, can I pick that up and can I sit down in that zone? Or are they in man and they're trying to disguise it and then I can run out instead of dropping into the uh, the hole where I you know typically would? So a lot of things like that come into play. And I, I think the, the, other, the other person I was going to mention is, I mean, look last year, Anthony Ratliff-Williams. I believe it was the first game of the year uh, where um, I think it was Surratt maybe threw him a deep ball and Ratliff gets turned around and it overthrows him. It should have been a touchdown. And everybody's like, oh, he overthrew him. Oh. But you go back and you watch the film and Ratliff just made the wrong play. For whatever reason, he decided to turn around instead of keeping running. And if he'd have kept running, it was an easy throw and catch. Um, but you know, I believe it was Surratt. He, he gets grief for, for that error. And what happened as the year goes on? Well, Ratliff Williams, where he had made several mistakes like that early, by the end of the year, he had gotten comfortable in what he was doing. He, he, he had his routes. He gained some confidence with the quarterbacks. Then he was able to go up and make plays. And that's the other part of it, too, is you, you, the quarterbacks uh, have to have faith in the wide receiver, just like the wide receiver has to have faith in the quarterbacks. And it got to the point at the end of the year, where, whether it was Surratt or Harris or, or Elliott, you know, if Anthony Ratliff-Williams is in a one-on-one situation, throw him the ball because he kind of showed that he has the ability of, of turning a 50-50 ball into 80-20. And that's what the really good wide receivers do. So, yeah, it's, it's not just on the quarterbacks. It's on all the skill position players. And then, of course, it's also on the offensive line to, to kind of you know, gel and make sure they, they buy some time. And when all those things kind of fall into place, then it becomes much easier for the quarterbacks, regardless of who it is. Yeah, that's a great point about Ratliff Williams. I mean, I remember that California game. He's wide open. And first blush, it's – you know, Surratt just blew it, an easy pitch and catch, like you said, and then you go back and watch it again, you see that if he just runs through the ball, runs through the end zone, he's wide open, and it's an easy catch. And and who knows how the season turns out if right. they somehow manage to get that win. Uh, you talked a heck about um, the two big names. You've mentioned them already here. We've mentioned them, Nathan Elliott and Chaz Surratt. And he had some interesting comments about each of those guys. I want to play that clip, and then we'll talk about it. Well, I think the, when you when you look at Nate, his his biggest strength is his mind. Um, I think he really he has a great understanding of of what we're doing offensively. 
I think he sees the field really well. Um, I think he has a great, great sense of football IQ, um, and, and he knows what to do. He knows where to go with the ball, um, and then that to me is probably his biggest strength. And and he's he's got an unbelievable work ethic um, that I think our football team has has bought into. Um, and then that's a credit to Nate by what he does each and every day. Uh, when you look at Chaz, Ch- Chaz has got unbelievable athleticism, um, and. He can be dynamic with the ball as a runner. He can be dynamic with the ball as a thrower. Um, and and he's got a, a, a ton of upside. And to see those guys take those strengths and continue to excel at them, but also, you know, focus on the, the areas where they – where they didn't have success to focus on those weaknesses and try to make them strengths um, has been a big focus for this off season. And, and really you think about both those guys, neither one of them had any experience last year and that's not an excuse, but I think they both learned from their experience. I think they both went into this off season with a different mindset and a different mentality in terms of how they have to go about their preparation um, and and I'm excited for for both of them as we as we get in into fall camp and get into this season. Greg, I listened to a quarterback coach discuss two guys, and you know you kind of want to blend them together and have that one guy, but they each bring distinctive things. I sense that you know Elliot is your more prototypical what you want in a quarterback. Um, maybe from a intangible standpoint, maybe, maybe I'm just thinking they're wrong, but Surratt has got that ability. It's going to be interesting to see how it develops your thoughts on Heckendorf's comments and, you know, further discussion you had, you guys had about those two. Yeah, no, I think you're right, Tom. I think, I think with Surratt, there is a, a ton of upside. Um, he, he's got the skill set for sure. I mean, he's got a good arm, great athlete, all those things. Uh, but there are a lot of guys like that. And so kind of his process is you know, how quickly can Chaz uh, become a better leader? How quickly can he understand the offense better and make some of those decisions quicker? Um, he showed flashes last year where you're like, wow, this guy could be really good. But then apparently you know, Elliot. Um, you know, it's just a little bit ahead of, of Surratt in terms of understanding exactly what they want to do. And so that is a, a unique, um, unique dynamic. And I, I kind of go back to 2013 uh, in the sense that going into that season, it was Brent Renner's your starter. And everything we were told kind of behind the scenes is that, you know, Mitch Trubisky, this kid is going to be phenomenal. And he's going to you know, be the heir apparent. And then your know, Marquise Williams had kind of struggled. He wasn't the best practice player. You know, he, he probably you know, wasn't going to be a big-name quarterback for North Carolina. Well, early in the year, North Carolina goes to Virginia Tech. Brent Renner is hurt that week in practice. And so what do you do? Well, you got to put Marquise in the game. So they dumb down the offense. Uh, they, they, they try to keep him out of harm's way, don't want to put too much on his shoulders because he's a young guy, you know, this is his first start. 
And then after the game, they start looking at tape and they say, wait a minute, this kid is really calm under pressure. Like he wasn't bouncing around in the pocket. He was, he was cool and collected. He, he shows some good leadership. And that kind of flipped a switch for some of the coaches. And then you, you go another month or so, and what happens? Bren has a season-ending injury. And now they're thinking, well, you know, if Bren gets hurt, we got to go with Mitch because he's the heir apparent. But because of what happened at Virginia Tech, they're thinking, well, maybe Marquise, you know, maybe he's a guy that uh, could give us more than we thought. We know how that played out. Um, and so I, I bring that up because I think last year it was like, okay, it's going to be Harris most likely. Uh, we, we need him to kind of catch up, though, because he gets in training camp, and it's just very slow going. And they knew Elliott was in good shape. They thought Elliott was fine. And then Chas starts showing potential. And so they go with Harris, and then Surratt is number two. And you know, if maybe if Surratt doesn't have the issues that he had midway through the season, they don't even put Elliott in because maybe you know the, the skill set's not as dynamic as either ha- Harris or Surratt. But then you put him in a game against Miami after Srat gets knocked out. And he wasn't fantastic numbers-wise, but the team rallied around him. And he was calm, and he knew what he was doing. And so now the coach is like, wait a minute. We weren't expecting this necessarily. And then they closed strong. Um, and so I think you know, it's easy for people to, just to look at the numbers and say, okay, well, you know, his outside of – the Western Carolina game, his numbers weren't all that great. There's a lot more that goes into it than just the the tangible stuff. And you gotta you have to be a good leader. You have to understand the offense. You have to have an idea of what the coaching staff wants to do. And so there's a lot of different dynamics that go into play. Uh, and I think that's what the coaching staff this offseason is trying to work through. You know, in in spring ball, uh, in leadership uh, situations, you know, in team building exercises, you know, during the summer. And now in a training camp. So uh, I, I still don't think that they know who it's going to be. Um, you know, we, we, we think we have a pretty good idea of who it was coming out of spring ball, that Elliot was, was the guy a little bit out in front. But a lot can happen in training camp. There's a lot of practices. So uh, we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. But I think it's a very fascinating dynamic between you know, a guy like Surratt, who has a ton of potential, and then a guy like Elliot. Uh, who maybe is not as flashy, but can do some of the things that's required to be successful. It, it is interesting. It's, we'll be talking about it every day on this podcast leading up <laughs> to, to that cow game, I'm sure. And, you know, I started to ask you, do you think they know who it is? I agree. I think if I was a, were a betting man, I'd bet on Elliot right now. But like you said, a lot could change. But, you know, at, at this point, does it matter if one guy's out in front of the other? Or do you think the competition's good? Yeah, I think competition's always good. Um, and I know a lot of people get frustrated with, with how Larry kind of does things. But unless there's a big gap, I mean, like after after 2015, we knew it was going to be Mitch. I mean, there was no question. And so that's why Larry went ahead and said, all right, look, it's May. Mitch is starting quarterback because we all knew it anyway. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily the case here. Um, I, I think, you know, if if you, something clicks for Surratt, maybe your first week of training camp, and the decision making improves just a little bit, then all of a sudden it's a different game. 
Uh, and then you have injury situations that come into play. So a lot of different things can happen. And so I think as long as these guys are think they're in a competition and acting like they're in a competition, the only thing that's going to do is make them better. Uh, and so you, regardless of what the coaching staff may think, uh, they're not going to let the players know who their number one is, even if they have an idea until right before that, that game. Um, and I think that's, that's by design. I think that's the smart thing. And I think it, it will, will help the team down the road, regardless of who ultimately you know, wins the starting job this year. Before we end this one, let's talk a little bit about um, the two other quarterbacks that are sort of in the mix, I guess. I think it would be high, highly unlikely we see either one. Um, if we do, I think it's not good for North Carolina, but I could be wrong. And that's Jace Ruder and Cade Fortin. And you talked to heck about them and he had a lot of words breaking their their games down. Fortin's had some injury issues, but just speak to that. I mean, ideally in a perfect world, you absolutely want these guys to redshirt, both of them, no question. Um, it's conceivable, I think, and I wanted to get your opinion that we see one, and I would think that one would be ruder, uh, but your thoughts on what heck had to say and, and just your thoughts from the observations that you've gotten over spring ball here heading into camp. Well, and talking with, with Keith, uh, he kind of confirmed some, some things that uh, we were told this off season and, and that, you know, Jace Ritter is an incredible athlete. Um, he has a lot of things going for him. He has a lot of potential for down the road. He, he does have to get better uh, throwing the football. That's something where he, he has to make some strides. Uh, and then, you know, Fortin's a guy that's got a big arm. But as you mentioned, you know, Fortin didn't play really the last, last year in high school. Um, and so he's a little bit uh, behind uh, Ruder just in terms of, you know, kind of knocking the rust off, if you will. Uh, but in, in talking with, with, you know, other people kind of behind the scenes, there's a lot of hype about Reuter coming out of spring ball, but it's not the kind of hype where you say, okay, this guy has a real chance of becoming the starter day one. Can he make that kind of leap in training camp? I mean, you know, anybody can, uh, but nobody expects that to happen. Um, they think Elliot and Surratt are, are far enough along where it's going to be one of those two guys. Now, I, I think with the new redshirt rule, that brings up, some interesting dynamics because you know I talked with Larry on Monday at the Pig Screen Preview and he was like, "Well, he said there's some guys that in September they are not ready to help you, but you get to November and they've had a couple couple extra months understanding what it's like to play at the college level. Now all of a sudden they're ready. You know, Jalen Dalton was that way, so he was very kind of slow out of the gates, and then at the end of his I guess first or second year." He kind of exploded during the season, and that's when he started to play more. And so you have guys that ha that do that. And so maybe, you know, maybe Root or you know even Cade, one of these guys is able uh, to gain enough confidence and get comfortable in the offensive sets where you're saying, okay, it's worth putting them in uh, and let them get some experience. I mean, easily we can say, you know, yes, they'll probably play against uh, who is it, Western, whoever the FCS. Uh, opponent is there at the end of the year uh, but you know, maybe some of these other games where it doesn't come down to the wire and maybe there's you know, you've got a you know 14 21 point lead 
you can put them in for a series or two and see how they do. I think that's the great thing about that that new rule. You have some flexibility late in the year to do that, depending on how far along they come. And like several coaches have told me, last year, with all the injuries, nobody's taking anything for granted. So you want all these kids ready because guess what? You know, as, as Keith told me, uh, you're you're only two plays away from being third string to first string. And so everybody has to be ready, and they're going to get them ready as if they're going to play, uh, even though they may not be the, the first or second option. That's a great point there about the injuries. And, you know, I, I kind of, you know, I, I've, let's talk about the red shirt thing just for a minute before we close the show. I, you know, being on Tar Pit message boards and all that and and watching, you see freshmen, true freshmen, and people sort of debate was burning their red shirt you know, in game eight worth it or game nine worth it. Now that's why I kind of like this rule. They can do that in game nine, 10 or 11 or 12 and not affect their eligibility or their, you know, they can still come back as a red shirt freshman. Your thoughts on that rule. I mean, that's, it's going to be weird, I think. And, I, you know, you mentioned the Western Carolina game. That is a perfect example. And I think you'll see it a ton in, you know, especially in like the SEC that always plays these cupcakes into the second to last season. I think you're going to see basically or could see basically a freshman or JV game in those type settings. Your thoughts there? Yeah. What's going to be interesting to me is how coaching staffs decide to, to utilize this rule across the country. Because in, in talking with, with Larry uh, and Carrie on, on Monday, he made the point that you know years ago, typically what you would do, you everybody had their non-conference games early in the year, and so young guys you'd put them in the non-conference games because they didn't really matter anyway, unless you're you're trying to play for a national championship, and you would see how they would do that first month, and if they could help you, well they're going to play in conference play, and if they couldn't help you, they're going to sit on the bench, and they could help you in the off season. Do you have that mindset of, okay, let's put these guys out there early. Let's see how they react to the college game. Let's see if we get any bites. And then you can say, okay, well, we're going to rat them or, or no, we're actually going to play them. Or do you say, like what I alluded to earlier, maybe some of these guys aren't going to be ready in September, but you get them to November or late October, and they're a different player. And now they can give you quality reps. Or what if you know, you've got a, a – senior defensive tackle who's all ACC, but you get to the second week of November and he sprains his ankle and he's out. You, do you do you try up those games for the end of the year in case you need them? Do you burn them early to see who can play? Do you spread them out? Do you give them just, just garbage time minutes or do you put them in, you know, in the second quarter of a game that matters just to get them a few reps and, and kind of, crucial situations and I, I think you're going to see coaches do all of the above and try to figure out you know what is the best way to utilize this rule and that's what's going to be so neat to watch uh, this year and in the next couple of years to come good stuff greg look forward to your story on the website like i mentioned earlier greg's got an accompanying accompanying story to this podcast plenty more content coming in the days and weeks to come at insidecarolina.com greg's working on a uh, in-depth story about play calling everybody wants to talk about play calling greg's going to cover all of that stuff for you at insidecarolina.com that'll do it for us tonight 
Greg, I appreciate you taking time to join me. All right. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for listening to InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting.